0: How to Create a Glitch Appropriation This is a summary episode, an amalgamation of material on the appropriation of identity. It is based upon five episodes of the monologues. In this episode one will be discussing the impact of competition on the principles explained in this podcast. A competitive interaction is one in which the same ultimate principles guide the interaction but the outcomes are interpreted in such a way that there is always a winner and a loser in the interaction. For example, I discussed how conservation produces scenarios where identity is conserved, which is to say that body switching will occur to produce continuity with an existing identity, rather than the occurrence of new experiences for another individual. So for example, if person A holds the belief that they always give in when the going gets tough, then situations where they did not give in will be assumed by another consciousness or personage. In the case of conservation, this process is called appropriation. Now, appropriation can also occur due to substitution and displacement. If we imagine that person A invades the body space of person B and experiences the thoughts of person B, as a result, this again is called appropriation. Now, substitution and displacement and conservation, Produce appropriation when the system interaction is zero sum, which is to say, that it doesn't have to be zero sum, but only when there are constraints upon the operation of a closed social system, must it necessarily manifest as a zero sum interaction. Union tends to occur to alleviate this zero sum nature of the interaction in many cases. Likewise, returning to the basic foundation as set out in How to Create a Glitch in the Matrix, the complete series, We also know that our appetites become stronger when we are close to approaching a glitch, or seeing past the veil. It is only when we resist our impulses to fulfill our bodily rhythms that we are able to see the truly unusual. That being said, we can also see that if this is the case, then we should see a period of glitching followed by a period during which time we appreciably gain weight, physically. Now, that is to say that our weight always fluctuates, but in practice we can also see that there is a relationship between our weight gain or loss and our propensity to observe a glitch or the unusual. Likewise, if one examines one's experiences one will also find that there is a relationship between the weight of a person and the size of the closed system they are able to manage interacting with. These two principles tell us that changes in our surrounding system size mediate our propensity to observe glitches, which is to say that migration into our closed system, or even our migration into another system plays a key role in whether we are able to observe the unusual. Now, building upon the thoughts raised in preceding podcasts in relation to time, it is clear that whether time is moving fast, or slow, should play no ultimate role in whether a glitch is observed. Thus, since it is possible to observe glitches at either end of the spectrum, it is fair to say that we must define what it means to glitch, irrespective of ideas such as time, or spatial space. Nevertheless, there are certain kinds of glitches which we, contemporaneously, take for granted, by brushing them off, or disregarding what we think we have observed. In other words, to truly appreciate all the oddness and incongruity of reality, one must have an eye for the unusual and not disregard or minimise. In this episode we will be talking about how social systems use appropriation to prune the social identity of group members pursuant to the social directive. In a previous episode we talked about the principle of conservation. Namely that identity is never created or destroyed, but rather, it moves from person to person through appropriation. We talked about how every impulse even those, which we do not express, Is expressed simultaneously by someone or in some universe, whether it is within folds in time, or whether it is simply by another person. We talked about how a gateway precedes all social intersection, how archetypal gateways produce convergence in both directions of time. We talked about how repression of impulses produces their appropriation by others. In this episode, one would like to talk about how a closed social system prunes us, so to speak by eliminating from our identity undesirable qualities through appropriation. The social directive tells us that being part of a closed social system means that we have to give up some parts of our identity to remain part of the group. Identity is a social construct, created by our residents within a particular in-group. Some of those impulses which we negate, are appropriated by system members, but others are appropriated by the outgroup through gateways between system members and the outgroup. How does this work you ask? Imagine that you have a bad drug habit, and imagine that it is undesirable in your social system. Perhaps one of the system members forms a connection, a gateway, with a heavy smoker. They cultivate this relationship, while keeping the person outside their in group. Whenever you feel the impulse to smoke, they call this person, Forging a strong link, talking about their common interests, while leaving out discussions of marijuana. Now, every time you feel the impulse to smoke, they reconnect with this person. The end result of this gradual process is the appropriation of the impulse by the outgroup member. The reason is that impulses preferentially stick to people by habit or reinforcement. This other person smokes with friends, who reinforce the habit. This means that, and in general, habitual impulses flock to those with the social reinforcement to facilitate them. Now, that's one example, but what if we are talking not about drug use, but faith in God? Perhaps you cycle through phases or religious practice and agnosticism. Your social grouping views your religious preoccupations as deleterious. This group member forges a relationship with someone who is affiliated with the same religion, but is highly religious. Whenever you form the impulses to practice, they rejuvenate this bond, by calling the person. Gradually the impulse is unworked from your unconscious mind and appropriated by the lifestyle of the religious person. You can see this process at work in your life by asking yourself the following questions. Who does my significant other have in her life outside our social grouping? What do I have in common with those people individually? What happens when she communicates with them to my lifestyle choices? In time, by analyzing your own behavior you will discover that your personality, through the social directive is being molded to eliminate what are viewed as deleterious features by those around you in your social grouping. Now the opposite is also true. Those within your social grouping may find their negated impulses appropriated by you. Thus it is possible to accumulate impulses that are unwanted. The process through which this happens is othering as explained in a previous podcast. Social in-groups will divert deleterious qualities and impulses to someone by othering them. This is most often done by comparing them to some out-group member and connecting with that member when you begin to exhibit deleterious features. Now, as also explained in a previous podcast, the individuals who enter our lives at given periods reflect an archetypal gateway. Every person in our life is bonded to us by some commonality, our identity convergence with them going forward and backward in time. But, the elimination of that gateway through appropriation, follows, resulting in our isolation and individualization. When this happens it often leads to the end of the relationship. The people in our lives all carry pieces of us, which we reclaim, and we carry pieces of them, which they reclaim and the process through which this happens is appropriation. This is the third episode of Season 5 of How to Create a Glitch in the Matrix Monologues. In this episode, I will be discussing the importance of body switching as a glitch and as part of the system's overall design. First of all, what is body switching? Body switching is when a gateway permits one individual to assume the identity of another individual with the consciousness of the first piggybacking with the second unplugged so to speak, that is to say not actively participating in the second's experience but believing himself to be participating. Let's try that again. Imagine you could use anyone's body for your day, only they remain in control, but you think you are. That is body switching. It's like a loan of the body, with interest. Now, how does body switching fit into the system? Simple. Conservation requires that all identity is expressed. Body switching ensures that deficits of physicality won't stand in the way of expression. In all cases, the body switch is done to ensure that an individual has continuity of self. In some, it is done to ensure the appropriate person experiences a given thing. For example, a person with a fixed belief, indirect ground, that they always fail at love, will find any success they have appropriated by another consciousness inside their body. Or for example, a person with a fixed belief in their own ability will find their failures subsumed in others' experience and their successes assured. Thus, conservation is as much about ensuring consistency in someone's experience as it is about confirming the grounded identity in any given moment. Body switching also occurs whenever we depart from expectations. This is to say that our body doubles will assume our lives for a time, or even permanently, With modest adjustments, i.e., name and profession, to ensure continuity for the experiences of those around them. Finally, in multiplicity, it is possible to see these body doubles in the context of a larger experience. For example, one may see multiple versions of another individual acting in divergent fashion within the same relative spatial space. One may see the world through another's eyes. More than that, Although gateways permit body switching, once it occurs, it may lead to identity convergence as the archetypal constellation of the two actors merges. Body switching has a darker side however, as it permits the expression of all identity including the shadow parts of our being, it allows others to use our body to act out, consciously, their darker fantasies, making us a kind of accessory. More importantly, It is possible to observe these actors and blame the host body. It is important to ask yourself if you lose time even for a moment, where was I? What was I doing? Because it may not be so clear-cut. Now in previous episodes we talked about how appropriation follows the principle of conservation, that all impulses are expressed, by ourselves, through folds in time, by alters in distinct universes or by others. In this episode we will be discussing how others express and appropriate those impulses. In the moments between moments, between this moment and the next, our consciousness, through the agency of our bodies, projects intention. This intentionality enters the space between moments, during which time it may be appropriated. But, it may also lead to expression according to the potency of the action. If it is appropriated, it will be appropriated by someone with whom we have a gateway, either personally or vicariously through others. During this appropriation, the potency of the action, and our self-image, is supplanted by another consciousness, and during the instant this happens, the phenomenon of body-switching presents itself. The substitution of another into our place occurs through space and time, through the gateway which unifies our minds. The alternative is also true. If we retain the potency of the intention we may appropriate the physicality of another in such a way that we express the impulse. In this case, it is possible our self-image, in these moments, will mirror theirs. Body-switching as a phenomenon also occurs between us and our doppelgangers, those with whom we share complex multifaceted gateways, preserving the continuity of our actions and minds. The complex archetypal convergence which precedes and follows this unity generates opportunities for appropriation and body switching. In effect, the processing between potency and intentionality, between inception and execution, generates a kind of infinite possibility for substitution and appropriation, unity and union. Body switching is the result of this unlimited space of potentiality created by folds in time. In this episode, we will be talking about a few topics including appropriation through divisive expectation contracts, among other things. In season 20, episode 6, we talked about how divisive expectation contracts are sometimes paired with conjoined expectation contracts during the process of appropriation. In this episode, I would like to explain how spatial non consensuality plays a role in this process. Now, to start off, Let's return to the example given in a previous episode. Imagine that person A and person C were in a relationship, but now person A and person B are. Person A has a conjoined expectation contract with person B and a divisive contract with C. Person B appropriates person C's identity relative to A, meaning that B Acquires archetypal fit through convergence and displacement of C. But the larger question becomes how does this work practically? Well, a divisive expectation contract is non consensual. Thus, as part of this process, person C is experiencing a non consensual reality in encounters with B or A. Thus, the principles of substitution and displacement or spatial non consensuality produce subordination to the tonic person B, which is preserved by the conjoined contract with A. In other words, person B erodes the physical territoriality of C in that non-consensual space, which is preserved or actualized by A's relationship with B. To put it simply, C loses territory to B which is preserved by A. When preferential expectation matching creates a social system around A as the nexus empath, the result is a progressive whittling away at the spatial territory of person C until the divisive contract is terminated. Now, what is this, territoriality? It is one's ability to induce submission spatially, to displace and substitute for another, to penetrate the physical space around a person deposing their consensuality. Now, when dissonant consensualities collide, the use of spatial territoriality induces a dominant relationship to the tonic, Subordinating the dominant to the unconscious release of tension for the tonic, according to the effectuation of his or her impulses. Now, what does the dominant do for the tonic? The dominant conditions the attention of the tonic, stepping into holes in his or her consensual reality, where non consensuality would ordinarily present. The dominant does this by fulfilling the projections of the tonic, according to his or her consensuality. In other words, We all have gaps in our consensual projections. We ordinarily deal with this by judging the objects, disregarding them, opposing them. Accordingly, our standard of measure becomes their reality, whilst in our consensuality. They will impose upon themselves and us what rules or conventionalities, what limits, we place on ourselves, whilst in our observation. Thus, in a way, a dominant plugs a hole in our consensuality but, and this is important to reiterate, the conventionality that we apply to them, does not reflect their reality, or conventionality, or consensuality, when we are not around to observe. In effect, we allow a slice of them into our consensual space, in accordance with our expectations, but it is mere appendage, projection, thus, their behavior otherwise might seem discordant. The natural, holes, so to speak in our consensuality, ordinarily manifest as the circumstances where we will take out socially, but, due to the presence of the dominant, don't have to. The interesting aspect of characterizing these consensual vacancies or non-consensual spaces in our projection, is that it accurately reflects the physiological reality, and reveals more directly the nature of physical intimacy, as explained in an earlier podcast last season. To begin, wherever there is union, There is substitution and displacement. That substitution and displacement takes the form of appropriation. Now, it may manifest, as in Season 21, Chapter 3, through divisive expectation contracts, or it may manifest, through spatial non consensuality. Suffice it to say, wherever non consensuality manifests, be it in the archetypal realm, or through social contracts, or through spatial interaction, appropriation follows. To reiterate, imagine that person A has a divisive expectation contract with person B. Imagine that person A and B were formerly in a relationship. Person C and A are now in a relationship. Thus, through this divisive expectations contract, person C will appropriate the identity which corresponds to the meeting of the expectations of A. Now, What is the significance of this? Fundamentally, through the principle of polarity, every thought is paired. Now, this is not a natural state, necessarily, but rather is the result of the tonic-dominant relationship forming between participating social actors. As two actors form this bond or relationship of conjoined expectations, it follows necessarily that their impulses, their thoughts will pair so long as it is maintained. This means that going forward, so long as that pairing is maintained, the divisive expectation contract will enable them to appropriate from B, and give to C. The most effective at this task is of course the nexus empath. She or he who forms bonds with a large number of individuals in their social network, which permits them to act as a conduit for the passage of common thoughts and feelings. But there is an added implication of this effect. The progressive pairing of thoughts grants person A. The ability to 1. appropriate new ideas and concepts through the divisive expectation contract, and 2. transmit those new ideas and concepts to other members of their social network or archetypal constellation. In effect, although individual attempts to generate or exculpate themselves from context can be successful, they will only be as successful as the person is isolated in their emotional bonds. The moment that a person permits or entertains acting upon an expectation of another, pursuant to what they later discover is a divisive expectation contract, they will find their identity, thoughts and ideas appropriated by the masses. It is likewise not a coincidence that these individuals will mirror the impulses and emotional states of those to whom they are engaged in what essentially amounts to leading on, further to the divisive expectation contract, And the appropriation of the identity, emotions, and ideas of the former. Thus, social contracts, and specifically divisive expectation contracts, can be a useful tool for some people, especially nexus empaths, to redirect or revert identity away from unfavored members of their archetypal constellation to favored ones. How does this manifest? Suppose you are working on an idea for a patent. You are person A. Now suppose you are in a relationship. Or at least, are led to believe you are in a relationship with person B, by person B. Now suppose person C, who is a friend of person B, also is in the same field as you. You have a breakthrough one night, and text message person B. You do not detail the nature of the breakthrough, but you have affirmed and met the expectations of person B, so it makes no difference. As a result, person C receives, through the parallel pairing of A, to B, and B, to C, the same idea. But, due to his association with D, finds it easier to get the preparatory work done to complete the patent. He succeeds in patenting the idea first. This is appropriation. Now, nexus empaths are frequently female, but not necessarily so. Thus, the social economy enables such behavior by commoditizing confidence Contracts and ideas. Many people have no idea they are lifting concepts and ideas from others through their social contracts, but some people do. In the end, the appropriation process is designed to favor those with the ability to influence social contracts, to compel compliance with expectation matching, even using coercive tactics to do so. Whether that involves the incentivization of sex or the commoditization of attention, Ultimately, matters less than the underlying impact on innovation and development of thought processes. It is through the process of parallel pairing that men such as Leibniz and Newton developed calculus at the same time. Just as it is through this process that Edison and Tesla competed. Nevertheless, it is often interesting to ask yourself, as an exercise, who was the nexus empath between these two figures? The answer between Leibniz and Newton was John Collins, a publisher. Just as between Edison and Tesla, it was Charles Batchelor, Edison's business partner. In past episodes, we also discussed how generation of new archetypes, narratives, results in their assumption by other members of the system. This happens through the agency of the Nexus Empath, who brokers the transmission of those narratives and archetypes to the masses, subliminally. Through the same process of pairing. In any event, the ultimate implication of all this is that appropriation is an orderly part of human relationships structured by contracts, archetypes, and spatial territoriality. But it also betrays the underlying inequity of a system which grants inception of ideas, archetypes, and concepts to some, then appropriates them and provides them as fully gestated to others. That's the end of the podcast for today. If you enjoyed it, Please like, comment and subscribe.